Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 11. We're going to be there for just a bit this morning, and then we're going to be spending the majority of our time in the front half of Exodus 12, but um, pray you are well. I really, uh, this is still not normal for me. This still feels a bit strange. I hope it never gets to a point where it starts feeling normal, Um, but I miss seeing you guys. I miss seeing and gathering together on Sunday morning. Um, And it's interesting that you don't really realize what you kind of miss about something until it's gone, right? And so uh, I think one thing that I've just find that I've been missing is just those kind of hundreds of small, seemingly inconsequential interactions that we have with one another um, week in and week out that you might not think much of it at the time. But then when when it's stripped from us, uh, you really kind of sense that loss of fellowship and uh, I've had to kind of just to be honest with you had to come to sense with the fact and come to terms with the fact that there's some grieving here uh, that uh, to kind of allow myself to grieve the loss of fellowship and, um, and and while still not losing that hope and so I just want to encourage you with that as we get going this morning that tension of grief and hope that I think we're all dealing with day after day um, uh, and to just to, to say it's okay to grieve it's okay to grieve loss whether that is loss of fellowship, whether that's a loss of work or um, a loss of peace of mind that you are currently experiencing, that uh, you don't need to feel guilty about that because we can grieve and we can grieve as those that um, still have and still cling to hope. Um, and it does just seem, you know, for um, myself, I know our staff in talking this week that this, this past few days, things have seemed to have shifted a bit um, in our area, at least, where it's not now so much about social distancing and stay at home and quarantining and kind of getting used to the new normal, uh, but now it's receiving news um, day after day of somebody that you know um, that is either experiencing symptoms or have been diagnosed. Um, and it's just, I feel like it's gotten a lot more personal uh, in this last week. And uh, I think we all knew this was headed this way. Uh, but to be honest with you, it's hitting me a bit harder than even I expected uh, now that we're kind of here. And so I'm praying for you daily. I'm praying that God is sustaining you spiritually, um, even as uh, you or people around you may be struggling um, physically and emotionally. But um, church historian Claire Davis described the Christian life in a way that I'll always kind of think about. And he, he, he describes the Christian life as a combination of amnesia and deja vu. It's this constant cycle of forgetting and then remembering, and, and then forgetting again and then remembering again. And uh, that the Word of God uh, is consistently telling people, and we are consistently telling one another, especially in these times, to remember, right? To remember who God is, to remember what God has done, and and then we forget, and then we remember again, and then we remember that we have forgotten this before. Well, our passages this morning will give us the opportunity to dial into the sole purpose of why God's people should remember. And to be honest, I don't think it could have come at a better time for us. Um, So as a way of reminder, um, over the past three Sundays, uh, we've seen the first nine plagues in Egypt out of the book of Exodus. It is this 
all-out assault that we have seen on the Egyptian gods, right? Exposing those gods as powerless, as uh, the false idols they really are, that, that always overpromise and under-deliver. And you have Pharaoh kind of standing at the center of this. Um, and while he is clearly hurting, he is frustrated, he is panicking, kind of limping along, um, uh, just kind of lamenting at the fact that his own gods and he himself are powerless in this. And even with all that being true, he's still prideful, still too hardened to let God's people go. And that brings us to chapter 11. We got a lot of ground to cover this morning. So we're actually only going to read a few verses of chapter 11, um, but I would encourage you um, to um, read the whole thing uh, when you have time. So this is uh, Exodus 11. We're going to read verse 1 and then 4 through 6. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Verse 4, so Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Chapter 11 gives us the warning, the warning for the 10th plague. And this is the most dire warning. It's the most significant warning because the 10th plague will be the most brutal. The Lord announces to Moses beforehand that this is it. This is the final one. Yet one plague more I will bring upon the land of Egypt. And this is going to do it. Afterwards, Pharaoh won't just let you go. He will drive you out completely. He will, he will drive you to the airport himself, right? Like, it is a powerful warning. It's going to be a powerful plague. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the richest to the poorest, even to the livestock, will die. This plague stands alone in many ways. Um, but the first nine plagues, God used different aspects of his creative order and sent those aspects of his creative order, whether it was darkness or hail or locusts, um, to Egypt to expose an Egyptian god. But now, for the final plague, God himself will come and render judgment on the land of Egypt. Verse 4, about midnight I will go out. And amongst the firstborn who will die is Pharaoh's firstborn son, the successor to the throne, to the one who is supposed to grow and become a god himself, knowing that when somebody becomes a Pharaoh, they, they become divine. They become a god in the eyes of Egypt, and, and he will be struck down. It's important to note, um, this is a warning, not a threat. 
right? The, 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 we kind of conflate the two often, but the difference between the warning and the threat is significant. God gives warnings, not threats. Uh, a warning is a means of grace to give uh, advanced notice of imminent danger if something is not done beforehand. But a, th- a threat is, is kind of planning to cause harm, even though it could be avoided, but um, you want to do it anyway. That's a threat, right? And the two are not the same. Uh, think about ourselves and we as fallen creatures. We often give threats instead of warnings, right? We get caught in the emotion. We get caught in the heat of the moment. And we just want to see something get done. And so our warnings become threats. And um, I can just say personally, nothing has made this more evident to me than parenting young children, right? Um, Everyone knows that giving warnings is a necessary part of parenting, right? And warnings, rightly done, show that you love them, show that you care for them. But when we get frustrated, when we get caught in the heat of the moment, our warnings often turn into threats. And and Rochelle and I, um, if not daily, several times a week, we'll have to catch ourselves giving unnecessary threats when our anger gets in the way, right? Like, um, Nine times we just have to kind of catch myself. Like, you know what? That was a little much. I'm threatening dessert for the whole next month because there's dinosaurs on the floor. It's just a little much, right? A little heavy-handed there. That's us. But God does not get caught up in the heat of the moment. God gives warnings, not threats. He doesn't say things just to get his way. He doesn't say things that he will do that could be avoided, but he got angry. No, he gives warnings as a means of grace to give people an opportunity to change course. And this is important here because he has given Pharaoh chance after chance, plague after plague, each of, it, each of which had warnings of their own, each of, this, each of which, like we saw last week, showed his kindness to relent, to give him a chance, and Pharaoh will not listen. And now he plainly has Moses tell him, hear me, um, this will be the final one. This will be the most brutal one. And I just want us to be careful of letting our minds go to a place of projecting our thoughts on God and saying, God, you know what? This feels like a little much. This feels too harsh. Taking the firstborn of everybody in the land. For for one, that projection, that mentality minimizes the seriousness of sin that we are always prone to want to water down the danger of sin, especially our own sin, of of kind of saying like, yeah, I know this is not ideal, I know it's not great, but it could be worse. I know somebody who's way worse than me in this department or in that department, so it's not great, but we can settle here. That's not the way we handle sin. And then also, I think God is telling us something here, that losing a son, losing a first child, it's a brutal loss. 
It's the worst kind of loss. Now, could you imagine sacrificing your firstborn for the sake of others? I think he's telling us something here. Which brings us to chapter 12. This is one of the most seminal chapters in the Bible. We're going to read now the first 14 verses. Hang with me. Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be, kept, shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. While all Scripture is God-breathed, all Scripture is profitable for teaching and for growing in the faith, there are certain hotspots that are vital to grasp if you're going to understand the arc of God's big story. And Exodus 12 is one of those hotspots. If you can understand, if you can hear and grasp what is happening right here, it will unlock a key part of the entire story of the Bible. And it starts with the Lord saying to Moses and Aaron, this very month is the beginning of months for you. This is the start of a new calendar. This is a new beginning for a nation that has been enslaved for over four hundred years. Israel, this is day one. Which was needed, I imagine, because I think the Israelites stopped tracking their days and their months and their years a long time ago. That their lives consist of the same day every single day. You wake up, you work, you maybe eat something, you work more, you sleep a little bit, you wake up again and repeat. That's the life of a slave. Now, current situation that we're all in, not the same at all. 
but I think many are experiencing some level of this when we're staying at home or we're quarantined or whatever you want to call it, of just kind of losing what track of what day it is, of what time it is, right? Every day is just kind of meshing into the next day and you're kind of losing your sense of the calendar. Maybe you woke up this morning and somebody in your house had to tell you, hey, it's Sunday. And you're like, what? It's Sunday? And I'm sure you got all dressed up and you're sitting on your couch for home church, right? Wherever there is a lack of freedom, there is not as much a need to track time. So with that said, put yourself in the shoes of the Hebrew people. It's not just a couple weeks with reasonable, restricted freedoms like we have right now, but 400 years of no freedom. And now the Lord says to Moses and Aaron, hey, wake up, this is day one for you. Day one, month one, for your entire nation. It's interesting, people love new beginnings, don't we? Don't we love the idea of a fresh start? Of a new day one? There are certain times of the year, in January and September, there's this idea of, of newness, this, this idea we get this kind, of, this, this kind of passion to reset, to work on some things, to chart out a new course. We love day ones. And this new beginning for Israel will be marked by a special day, the first Passover. This is a great timing for us to be here in the book of Exodus. The Jewish Passover in 2020 begins next Wednesday, April 8th. And as we approach quickly in the coming weeks, Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter on the Christian calendar, you, you really can't fully understand those days, let alone the gospel itself, without the Jewish Passover. In chapter 12, God's explanation of the Passover to Moses is pretty simple enough to track. The whole nation of Israel is to take a one-year-old lamb that is spotless, that is without blemish. On the tenth day of the month, they are to take this lamb into their home. Then on the 14th of that month, they are all to kill the lamb at twilight. To eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs and take the blood shed from the lamb and put it on the doorposts of their home. So they're to eat it with unleavened bread because Israel will be rushed out of the country this very night by the Egyptians once the tenth plague hits. So the first Passover meal will be eaten standing up, right? Like that's what he said. Your belts are fastened, your shoes are on, your staff is in hand. You know what this is? This is history's first account of fast food, right? Uh, okay, I'm going to have AJ edit that one out. Um, but uh, there is my dad joke for the day. Um, fast food, eat it, standing up. You're going to be on the run, unleavened bread. And then you're going to eat it with bitter herbs to remind you in this meal of the bitterness of slavery that they were all held by. Remember back in chapter 1, that word bitter showed up three times when describing Egypt's treatment of the Israelites. And then the blood of the Lamb. Because when God travels through Egypt in the tenth plague, He will pass over the homes where there is blood on the doorpost and no death will come to that family. The first 
Passover, as clearly as ever, presents to us the the key ingredients to salvation of, of grace, blood, and faith. And I just want to quickly look at each of those here. Um, first, grace. The, the whole event is God making a way for Israel to be forgiven of their sin, um, not because Israel is good and of themselves. Right? The, the headline is not, hey, Egypt is bad and deserves death, but Israel is good and they deserve life. No. It says that Israel receives God's grace despite their sin, despite their deserving death, and there is a massive difference. Israel, God's people, consists of sinners. They are as idolatrous as the Egyptians. We've, we've seen it sometimes already in Exodus. We will see it again very soon after the Exodus. So what makes them different is not their moral uprightness, their goodness. What makes them different is God's grace. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As my my dad would always say, um, you know what that word all means in the original Greek? You can go look it up. You know what it means? It means all. And we need to say this over and over again because we forget about it often that what makes God's people special is not the people, it's God. God's grace in making a way out of His great love and mercy for people to be saved. So the original Passover shows first, grace. And second, blood. A holy God can't just look upon the sins of his people and say, nah, you know what? Don't worry about it. You you know, don't worry about undermining my glory. Let's just brush that aside. Let's just forget about it, right? No. Sin cannot just be forgotten about. It needs to be forgiven. And in order for sin to be forgiven... Justice must be carried out. And Israel needed a substitute. It needed a sacrifice in their place. The sacrifice of a spotless lamb. This is not a new idea that God's putting in place. Like, hey, I got this idea now since I created the world where now we'll just use an animal sacrifice. In fact, it's always been God's plan for covering sin. The shedding of blood has always been God's plan for covering sin from the beginning of time. You go back to Genesis, Abraham sacrificed a ram instead of himself and his son Isaac. Even before that, in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel were called to bring sacrifices to the Lord. And even before that, Adam and Eve had to be covered with animal skin after rebelling against the Lord in Genesis 3. Just a few verses after the fall, we were told that God clothed them. He covered them with animal skin, which which required a sacrifice. It required the shedding of blood. This has always been the case. So this is a new beginning for Israel. And this Passover 
would require the shedding of blood of a substitute to cover their sins. Death would pass over them because they would be under blood. First, grace. Second, blood. And third, faith. The Israelites did not earn their opportunity to be saved. They did not earn the provision of a lamb. But God always provides what God demands. There's no such thing as cheap forgiveness. There's no such thing as forgetting about it. But God provides what God demands. And he provided a lamb. And the sacrifice of that lamb and the shedding of the blood on the doorposts of their homes was an act of faith on the part of the Israelites. Faith is receiving the hand of salvation. Faith is accepting the offer placed before them. Faith is the act of saying yes to the gift of freedom by God's hand. This is why Exodus 12 is so important. This is what the first Passover shows us. The grace of God. The blood of a sacrifice. And the response of faith. This is how the Hebrew people would be saved out of the land of Egypt. This is the key to Israel's day one. Their new beginning. And this, the Lord says shall be for you a memorial day throughout your generations. Never forget this. Always remember the Passover, the day that no plague will befall you. Let's keep going. Back in Exodus 12, we're going to read verses 15 to 20. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold an assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever." In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. We saw the warning of the plague, we saw the Passover, and now we see the feast. Here's probably the most overlooked aspect of Exodus 12. Um, Many, if not most of you, I imagine, are familiar with the Passover, the significance of the Passover, but the week following the Passover meal is probably the most overlooked. It's known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It could seem kind of confusing there, maybe while we were reading, but, but the 14th of the first month is the Passover in the evening, and then the seven days following is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Lord gives precise instructions to Moses to pass along to Israel 
that whenever they observe the Passover in the promised land, the seven days following, you're to remove all the leaven from your households. And you're to hold a gathering on the first day and the seventh day, and no work is to be done. Okay, so what's this all about? What's this feast about? What's its significance? All right, again, we probably have the Passover down. You got the blood of the lamb, and God passes over the homes. Um, you have the unleavened bread because uh, they're being rushed out of the land to remind them of that. You have the bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of slavery. But why now? Seven days straight of unleavened bread. And finally, what in the world does this have to do with us? It's great questions. You guys are asking great questions today. Let's chat about leaven. Leaven, um, another more familiar, more modern word, is yeast. Leaven or yeast, is the ingredient that makes bread rise. So again, you have the symbolism that Egypt will hastily drive you out of the Egypt the night of the 10th plague, and you'll eat bread, and therefore you'll eat that bread before there was time to rise. But that's not the only significance. I've been very persuaded by commentators and historians who see this week-long feast to mean much more. Because leaven or yeast in the Bible is often used to signify sin. Especially in the New Testament, the teachings of Jesus and Paul, they use yeast as a word picture for sin. Jesus in Luke chapter 12 says, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Yeast being a direct metaphor for sinful hypocrisy. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, he's admonishing church leaders in the city of Corinth to discipline a man who is grossly in sin. And he says this, Don't you know a little yeast permeates the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old yeast so that you may have a new batch. You are indeed unleavened, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore let us observe the feast, not with old yeast, or with the yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity or truth. Do you see it? For God to command Moses and Israel to remove the yeast from their homes is to remove sin from their lives now that they have been saved. Whether Moses and Aaron recognize that in the moment here is, is unclear but I think it becomes very clear when you see it in the scope of the whole Bible. So here's the bottom line. Here's why it matters for us. God saves his people to be sanctified. Let me put it another way. God doesn't save you because you have already defeated sin. He saves you and then empowers you to battle and defeat sin, to remove it from your lives. So, so we seek to live holy lives. We, we seek to battle the sin that remains in us and to root it out because he's already saved us, not so that he will save us one day. This is the flow of the gospel, and this so often in our day gets flipped. It gets turned around. But the flow of the gospel is justification and then sanctification. It means that you are saved by God's grace through faith. And as a result of that salvation, you are empowered by God 
through the Holy Spirit to obey His commands, to walk in holiness. Justification and sanctification are two sides of the same coin, and the order matters, that you were justified, freed from slavery, and then you were saved in order to be sanctified. It's the Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover happens in a moment, it happens in an evening, and then the feast over a period of time. The old has passed away, the new has come. So so wear those clean clothes you've been given and walk in the freedom that God has purchased for you. Philip Ryken, he was a former pastor in Philadelphia, now he's the, I believe, still the current president of Wheaton College. He put it best. He said, in the Passover, God took the people out of Egypt. And now in the feast, God wants to take Egypt out of his people. As we will soon see, Israel will struggle in their freedom. They will cling to their old ways in Egypt. They'll cling to some of the gods and idols that were so deeply rooted in them in their time there. And they have been rescued from slavery, but that does not automatically translate to just an easy life of obedience in God's design where sin is just gone overnight and there's just no battle, no effort needed. It's just a cakewalk. And this should provide us some comfort that, that the journey of following God is a process. That we believe that justification happens in a moment. It happens by faith alone. But sanctification takes a lifetime. Like, like growing in obedience and again, rooting out that sin that remains. Like That's a struggle, isn't it? Like anyone else, anyone else have a struggle just rooting out sin that remains in your life? Can I get a single amen in a living room out there? Like it is slower than we want. It's a constant battle, but God's grace is sufficient to carry us through. By God's grace, we are saved. And by God's grace, we will grow in holiness over time, even if it's slower than we want which is to say, it is by grace we are saved to be sanctified. This is why Israel needed the feast of unleavened bread. This is why it should not be so easily overlooked in Exodus chapter 12. All right, let's read final passage for this morning, Exodus 12, 25 to 28. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Finally, we see the memorial. Moses is directed to tell the nation of Israel, 
that once you're in the promised land, you're to observe this week-long Passover and feast year after year after year because it's a memorial day. It's an annual reminder of what we are so prone to forget. And inevitably, when the children start kind of seeing how you act around this time, they see how big of a deal this all is and how much preparation is involved, and they're just going to ask like children do, what's this all about? Why are we making such a big deal about this day? He said, you tell them. You tell yourself, this is a sacrifice we make for God because of what God did for us. Children, he passed over our homes and he saved our people for his glory. Now I know Holy Week begins next Sunday, but I hope you don't mind if we get a little head start right now, right? Any objections? Any objections? Nothing. Great. Um, The night Jesus was arrested, it was the middle of the night following the Passover meal. A Passover that he's had with his disciples at least two times already in previous years. But this time, he stood up and made various toasts as the host traditionally did on this Passover meal that has been in existence within this people group for thousands of years. And in that Last Supper, He held up the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he held up the cup and he said, this is my blood which is poured out for you. And in that meal, across all four gospel accounts, you know what part of the meal is conspicuously missing You know what no gospel account mentions? The lamb. And the reason is because Jesus is the lamb. The one standing here would be the one who would be slain. And he would be the substitute for sin for whoever believes in You might ask, your children might ask, why don't Christians celebrate the Passover anymore? And the reason is because Jesus fulfilled the Passover. It was the grace of the Father to send His one and only Son out of mercy and love. That God provides what God demands because He's a good Father. And it was the blood of the Son poured out on our behalf, shed on our behalf, so that the Lord will pass over our sins and claim us to be his people. And it is the response of faith made possible by the Holy Spirit that receives the gift of salvation so that we too will be saved from the bondage of slavery and freed as God's people for God's glory. Jesus fulfilled the Passover. And so while we don't celebrate that actual meal, we do remember it. 
we do see how vital it is in God's story. And Jesus did still leave us with a meal. He did still leave us with a memorial to be observed. It's what we call the Lord's Supper. It's what we call communion. And it's why we can't overemphasize the significance of the Lord's table and the time of communion that we share in the life of the local church because it serves to remember Christ's sacrifice of His blood being shed. And church, is there anything more important to remember? Especially in times like these, that God's grace has been bestowed upon you and He provided what He demands. That the Son's blood has been shed on our behalf. That you too, in faith, a gift from the Holy Spirit can be freed from the bondage of sin. That's what we remember when we take the Lord's Supper together. That's what we say when children ask you, what are we doing here? There's little plates being passed and these cups and these little pieces of bread. Like, what's this all mean? That's what we tell them. And it does for New Covenant believers what the Passover did for Israel. That you hold it and you behold it. It's an opportunity to remember your day one. The day you were given a new beginning. The day to reflect upon the salvation that was purchased for you. And like the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's a time to confess that sin does still remain in us. And we are, by God's grace and God's Spirit, rooting that sin out. And so every time that we hold it together, it's not just a reminder that you have been saved, but it's a reminder that you are being sanctified and that we are free to confess sin because He's free to forgive it. And every time we hold it, it's a recommitment on our part to say, I will, by God's grace, continue to battle in my life. And I'm not going to give up. And we've been freed from the power of sin, and so now we have the power to fight the presence of it. This is why we take it when we gather. And I just want to say this to close. This is why we will not be taking it again until we gather here again. I'm not necessarily against, I don't think it's sinful to take communion in your homes by yourselves, but I wouldn't encourage it. Because it's a family meal, a church family meal that is covenanted together in the local assembly and that we should long for that time when we can get together again. And you can be sure that whenever that first Sunday is, we will break bread together. And church, I can't wait because it will be a feast. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for Exodus 12, we're so grateful, Lord, for the timely reminder it gives us as a church in this moment when we need it, when we're prone to forget. Father, I pray that it would deepen our trust in you, Lord. I pray it would awaken faith in somebody this morning, Lord. That for the first time, by your grace, they would see 
that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And that it is His blood alone that saves us and sustains us and sanctifies us. Lord, I pray that that would not just be a good reminder for the sake of us just head nodding to it this morning, but it would be a very means of power and strength that sustains us in this time. And I pray, Lord, that we would be able to gather once again as soon as we are able and break bread together, Lord, and remember what you've done together as a church. And it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.